0: Hello and welcome to the Crystal Podcast on iCode Media. Today, I had a great conversation with Jeremy Burrows from Car Real Estate. Uh, It was a lot of fun for me. I learned a bunch. Please enjoy our conversation. As always, be sure to subscribe to the podcast, write a review, share it with your friends, and support those who support us. Listen, if you're trying to enhance a protocol in your practice, and you're trying to answer whether or not you can integrate this protocol in a way that allows you to take care of patients who have both medical and managed vision care needs, we've got the thing for you. It's called Total Patient Care, icodeeducation.com. We also have a mastermind group that is quickly forming and quickly filling up for this summer that's going to start and launch on June 1st. So. Don't wait. Get access. We'll have a coupon code now in the show notes that will allow you to access that at a discount and jump on board with the Summer Mastermind Total Patient Care Group. It will help you answer the questions that you're struggling with within your practice to integrate new protocols and new disease state management. Check it out iCodeEducation.com. That's E Y E C O D E Education.com. One of the challenging things with patients is that when they invest in a really high-quality pair of glasses and customized lenses, occasionally it can be difficult to keep those lenses clean, scratch-free, and smudge-free. Now, we have the ability with Crizal Sapphire HR lenses to offer our patients a best-in-class anti-reflective coating that is also resistant to scratches, smudges, and deposits. This means that patients spend more time enjoying clear and comfortable vision and less time caring for their lenses. So remember that you can provide patients with the best in quality, best in class, transparency, clarity, durability, and UV protection in a single Crizal coating. If you want to learn more about Crizal Sapphire HR, contact your Essilor account executive or visit EssilorPro.com backslash Crizal. I think that there's a lot of optometrists that are kind of thinking through how do we negotiate properties? How do we own properties? It's something that we do so infrequently that it can be a challenge when you do it. So knowing what we can negotiate, what's harder to negotiate in this sort of market, I think would be worthwhile having a, a discussion on
1: Absolutely. I mean, I, you know, I don't know about you, but uh, so far I haven't met any optometrists who, after they got out of residency, they're like, yeah, I, you know, we also had, you know, about 120 hours of, uh, training in real estate while we were, you know, in residency. It just doesn't seem to happen. Um, so, you know, that, that's pretty common that, and it's not just, you know, it's not just optometry. It, it's dental. It's veterinary. It's medical. It, it, you know, it's chiropractic. It's every healthcare professional. You guys are trained to, in a very specific field in a, in, as a clinician to do a very specific thing. And that's where your focus is. But unfortunately it's a bit of a disservice for those who are going to come out, who are going to also be small business owners. And that's what you guys are for the most part, optometrists are small business owners as well as clinicians. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And I, so that kind of really leads me into, in this market right now, if, if you were going to like, let's say you identified, so I want to. We'll get to kind of leasing in a second, because I think it'll build on our conversation yeah. related to purchasing. But let's say you had identified yeah. a piece of land that you could build on.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, what would be the, the types of questions that, that we should think about or that we should ask to just know, All right, is, this a, is this a valuable or is this a good investment?
1: Yeah. Okay. Well, it's, it's funny. I actually just got done teaching a, a course about this at our national training on land because I, I think I've done more land deals than, uh, than anyone else in our company. So I, I didn't realize we were going to be hitting this today. So it's, it's just uh, perfect timing on that. But you've got to understand what is your goal with the land? Okay? You're not buying land to say, hey, I now have this half acre, one acre piece of commercial property sitting over here, and I'm going to use it to have picnics on Sundays. No, you're not, you're not buying land as an asset. Yes it is an asset in fact, it's one of the best assets uh, that you can invest in because without something extremely detrimental happening to the land like toxic waste being dumped on or something, uh, it's going to not only retain its value but it will it will actually increase in value it will always appreciate uh, it's one of the few things that uh, you know we tell our, our clients they, they find out when we you know buy a building or, or we do a project like this uh, they find out from their CPA that they ha- we have to put a value on the land because that can't be depreciated. Because land does not depreciate for the most part. It only Mm. appreciates. Whereas the building and everything else on it is going to depreciate. So that's the first thing we look at is, well, why are you buying the land? You're not not buying the land as an asset. Some people do. There's a lot of people who buy land as assets and they just let it sit. And for that, that's an investment purchase. Well, you're buying this to... Build your practice on to build a building on maybe to build something that's more than just your practice it's a it's a larger building maybe a retail strip or something like that you're wanting to get into more of almost tough you know investment um real estate but what you're doing is you're looking at this from the point of what am I going to do with the land? how can I accomplish my goal as quickly as possible and for the most part that it's probably not going to be just going out and buying the dirt. Uh, it's going to be working with some, you know, you, uh, say you come to us, we sit down, we go, okay, doc, what are you wanting to do? You want to do a, you know, 2,500 square foot clinic. Oh, you're also wanting to do a little extra space as well. Okay. Well, let's sit down. Let's figure out, are we going to work with a developer? Do we need to go get an architect? Do we need to, uh, you know, do some initial, uh, due diligence just to find out if this, you know, is it zoned properly or, or do we have any easement issues? I mean, there's lots of things that come into play with land. i tell you that that's one of the most complicated um, purchases that you could do in commercial real estate is land. It, okay. Buildings are easy, <laughs> okay.
0: So, building, okay. So, buying land so, and building something—that's tough. And so you said, you know, you you brought in a couple other things. You talked about, okay, well, we do we use an architect or a developer? Describe the differences yeah. from your perspective
1: yep. of what would be why would you use one over the other? Absolutely, that, that's and really that's two different models. Really, it's kind of an architect-driven model versus a Uh, A developer, I'll call it a developer. The word developer, honestly, it has different meanings to different people. We'll just call it the uh, build-to-suit model, okay? Because the build-to-suit model could use just a build-to-suit contractor. It could use a person who's actually a developer who says, hey, look, I'm the guy who takes it from raw land to finished product. I deliver you finished product ready to go. I think almost like a custom home. You know when somebody goes and and says, "Man, I want to build a home on that piece of land over there." Well, they hire a home builder who who helps them do all that. And the home builder says, "Yeah, sure. Go talk to that architect Here's You know, here's the architect over here we use and and I'll start having my guys look at engineering and they they kind of have a team already around them that is doing the architect, the engineering, the, you know, help you with design, help you, you know, interior design, picking out all the different stuff that you need to pick out as opposed to going and doing a, a what would I call the architect driven model, which is someone who's going to say, man, I want to go and I'm gonna, I'm gonna go with an architect and I'm gonna start spending money with an architect. And we're going to design this building to hopefully fit this piece of land, you know, and hopefully you've got a piece of land already picked out. Believe it or not, I've actually had clients who did not have a piece of land picked out. They just went and designed a building, which is mm. wonderful. You can always design a building, but then now you have to hope that the piece of land that you're going to buy fits it, and and it doesn't always do it. You know, because of easements and and ingress and egress and all these other things, it doesn't always work that way. And so I always caution somebody: please don't go start spending money until you've at least picked out a couple of options as to where you're you're going to put this building. But that's really the difference: is an architectural driven model is all about design. It's all about let's get the building exactly the way we want it. And I I would say people who are who are just not detail oriented, but but let's just say who want to control every single little step of the process and who, who want to be involved with every little step of the process. Maybe a, a, an architecturally driven model could be better for them because they're going to have to do a lot. You're going to have to be involved in a lot of that stuff. Whereas a build a suit model tries to take your budget in mind, tries to take uh, you know, as many, it tries to make put as many things together as we can. That way, you've got one guy that you're dealing with who then has the uh, he has the architect, he has the engineer, he has the team, the construction company a lot of times as well, and can just deliver that product within a budget as opposed to let's just go design a beautiful building and then you know, then we have to get it priced out. And we find out, ooh, It uh, priced out a lot higher than what we expected. So now we got to go back to the architect, do more redesigns. And it's just, it's a different model. There's not one that's better than the other. There's just certain people that are going to gravitate towards different models. And as an agent, my job is to have my client's fiduciary, their best interest at heart, and to look at them and kind of help them go yeah, you're more of a, you're more of a build a suit type of guy or, or no, you're, you're going to want to control every little part of this process. You probably should go, let's work with an architect. And then you get to pick your engineer and you get to pick your design company, you know, your interior designer, and you get to do all of this. And and you're going to control the loan. You're going to, you know, you're going to have to cut checks, all that stuff.
0: Yeah. I would say that, you know, just from my, cause having not done that, um, I, I would, I would say it's very similar to you want to function as remodeling your house and you're going to function as the sort of general contractor and you're going to find all the subs versus hiring a general contractor and
1: letting them do everything else. Yeah. And you know, the funny thing about that is because the the DIY approach is honestly what we see as one of the biggest hangups in, in healthcare in, in, in real estate, because, Let's just, let's just face it. Uh, healthcare professionals are very good. You guys are great at what you do. You're extremely intelligent people. And what happens sometimes is when you're extremely intelligent, you start going, well, I can do that. I can do that. Mm. I can do that. And yes, you can. But at the same time, is it worth your time? Yeah. Are, are you actually getting the best pricing on these things? Is, I mean, just as a real estate professional, I'll tell you right now, when, uh, I do commercial real estate, when it comes to residential real estate, I don't touch it. I don't go anywhere near – that is not – I am not – even though I, I could handle that, I'm going to hire somebody else to do that because there are so many little nuances about that that I don't deal with on a day-to-day basis that they're going to know the market better. They're going to know pricing better. And when you hire a general contractor, for the most part, instead of being your own GC and uh, and going and, and hiring each individual sub, you actually get better pricing from those contractors I mean, because those mm. subs – they work for that general contractor all the time. You're a one job guy. So, I mean, I I know this because my family has a history in construction. I'm, I've got multiple uh, family members who are in construction. And when I hire a single contractor, my pricing is not as good as the pricing that that sub gives the general contractor because that general yeah. contractor is employing him on 15, 20 jobs a year.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that all makes sense. I think So then, you know, to the next step is you've identified the land. You decide that you're going to kind of do this uh, all in one. Like you know, we'll call it a general contractor because that's my the way my brain thinks. Yeah. What What do you do next? I mean, so do you buy the land first? Do you go to the bank first to do the whole project? Like what What is typical in
1: this sense? Well, I'll tell you that for our clients. We will, the moment a client comes to us and, and, you know, let's just say you're my client and you came to me and said, Jeremy, I want to go buy some land and build a building. I'm going to say, great, Chris, who's the bank that's financing this? That's going to be my Mm -hmm. first question. Okay. Because if we don't have that lined out and at least have your financials to the bank, have it where they've taken a look at it and they've given us just kind of a shoot from the hip number of, yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, You know, you could do easily a 1.5, you know, maybe up to a $2 million project without too much, you know, uh, without pushing your finances too much. Well, that gives us the information we need to even go find what land are we looking at? Because land varies greatly in its price. So Mm -hmm. what land can we even look at? And then it lets us know, well, should we be going at more of a uh, just a, a project for you, uh, a larger project? Uh, you know wh- What What are we wanting to do here? So that budget honestly should guide everything. So the bank, in, in our estimation, every time a person comes to us and they have not gone to the bank, that's the first thing I'm telling them is let, mm-hmm. let's go to the bank. Let's do that. I'll start doing initial research. I'll start bringing up our options. But it, it's the same way as if you, you go to have a, a real estate agent on the residential side, you want to go buy a house. Or you want to buy right. land and build a house? They're going to go great. What do you pre-approve for? And, and right. that's because without that number, we're just shooting in the dark, and, and we can yeah. be showing you great pieces of land that can't even fit your budget. Right, right, yeah. So, uh, so that's very helpful. And so then, let's say
0: that um, you, you you've done that, you've gone to the bank. Um, mm-hmm. Our banks, yeah. you know, with professional buildings, like let's say you're going to build a professional building, uh, and you're going to house yeah. maybe the option of you know, three to four different professions in it. Maybe uh, it's, it's going to be yeah. a professional building yeah. and you've got some extra space for other people. Um, are there still banks that are doing, I mean, I've seen some stuff from a few banks where they'll, they'll finance the whole thing.
1: Absolutely. Is that still common? Financing. It, it, it's No, it's not common. Um, there are some banks who do that, uh, so, so you, you brought up something in that question that really is going to be the divergent point of, mm. of really these projects. And that is, are you doing a project that houses either only you or where you will occupy at least 51% of that project? Okay. So you could build, let's just say you wanted, you know, pretty standard optometry office, you know, 2,500 square feet. You want 2,500 square feet. But you go, man. All of my buddies are telling me that you know, I should have more lease space in this building. You know, I, it'll help pay for my own, you know, my mortgage, which is true. And so we go, okay, great. So we're going to build a five thousand square foot building. That way, you can occupy twenty five hundred square feet. We'll say twenty five oh one. That way, you're mm-hmm. just over that fifty percent margin. <laughs> that is considered owner occupied real estate. Okay, owner occupied real estate is financed at a totally different level than investment mm-hmm. real estate. So owner occupied is what you're talking about. Where a lot of these banks can do 100% financing. I say a lot. A few of the banks can do 100% financing. The standard for owner occupied is a bank will do uh, 80 to 85% LTV. So that's a loan to value. So they will loan if the project, you know, the whole project's going to cost, let's just say $1 million. They will loan you $850,000 of that. That's the maximum they'll go. You have to bring $150,000, you know, down payment to the table. Well, if you have a bank who's doing 100%. They're probably doing. They're, they're, what they're doing is uh, one of two things. It's either going to be a type of SBA loan, where SBA you can get a lot lower down payments. You, um, there's different, you know, different things that go with that. Typically higher interest rates, but it's a, a longer term. It's a 25 year fixed term. Uh, there's banks like Live Oak who do, uh, you know, a lot of SBA lending and optometry and a lot of other healthcare professions. But then any bank can do an SBA loan. But there's Two different types of them, but let's just put that aside. So it's either an SBA loan, or it could be that you're doing um, a conventional loan. If they're going to achieve that 100% financing, it's they're going to have to pull that money from somewhere. And normally, what they're doing is they're looking at the value of your practice, and they're actually Mm -hmm. borrowing against that. Okay, so you're still in essence really putting down payment on it, but you're not putting cash on the table. Okay, it's coming because you've got a practice that's already going that's worth a certain amount of money. So startups probably not going to be, it's not going to work for a startup, but a a practice that's already going, you know, say you've been practicing for three years, five years, seven years. Well, they simply look at that and they can value that practice and go, yeah, you've got X amount of collections. Cool. Yeah. You can, uh, you know, your practice is worth this much. We'll borrow against that. And, And it's a great way to do it. I mean, honestly, Chris, this is, this is very, um, smart banking for them to be able to do it, but not that many banks can do that because, not that many banks understand healthcare and the, your cash flow. It's very complex. And we, yeah. we work with the banks who do that because some of our clients, they really want that. And so we, hey, here's the 100% financing option. Some of them go, no, I, I want to put 10, 15% down because I want to get the lower interest rates. I want to get the better terms because you typically get a little better terms you know, when you're putting cash on the table. Yeah, and of so then they, they'll go at it that way.
0: Yeah. So then. So then. Okay. So uh, that kind of brings us into where I want to transition a bit and talk about what you were expecting to talk about, which is leasing. Because then we get to kind of yeah. <laughs> actually have the conversation about leasing as the owner, right? Like, what do I want if I own yeah. this building? Yeah, that's right. I want to lease to myself, but also lease to, you know, other other docs that might be occupying space. Mm-hmm. But then I also have to take into yeah. account the fact that I'm leasing from myself. So. And a fair market value. Try. So let's let's walk through that. What what types of things would I, as the building owner, want to uh, want to consider, and then also as the li- li- lessee, want to consider as well?
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. You're you're lessee and lessor. It's a you know yeah. I, I I love it when my uh, clients you know we we sit there and talk about it and and the different hats they have to put on. And the biggest thing I will tell you. Okay, so let's just take the example of uh, you you are. Your own building, you're your own tenant because that, that will play in, in all the other scenarios. Yeah. So you, you are the owner of the building. You have a mortgage. That mortgage is going to have principal, it's going to have interest. That the way we look at this, we go, okay. So as a, you know, as the owner of the building, you're going to have to pay that much money to the bank, regardless, no matter what. So as the tenant, so as a, as a landlord, you want to make sure that your tenant is covering over that number. Because you want profit too, because you're a landlord, right. so you want profit on your investment. So you want to look at that and and the principal and interest payment that you pay monthly. That is the bare minimum that you want your practice to be paying to your holding company, your your LLC that you're holding company for the building. So that's the minimum. It's easy to set it up on something called a triple net lease, where basically the tenant is responsible for all utilities in their own name, okay, and and the tenant pays their pro rata share of taxes, insurance, and commonary area maintenance was basically all the expenses the tenant pays. And then the landlord really is just responsible for, uh, you know, for the building itself and, t- and taking care of it. And if they, uh, you know, if they have to, uh, you know, restripe the parking lot or something like that, well, that goes into commonary maintenance. So it all gets pushed back to your tenant in that sort of triple net lease, which is, is kind of what you want. You don't you don't want it to be anything where you're left at the end of the year going, oh man, I, I should have charged myself more as a tenant because uh, I had some expenses that came up as a landlord that I didn't didn't pass that direction. So that's the minimum. Now, the maximum, what I would tell my clients is charge yourself as much as we can justify as a market rate. Okay. I'm gonna mm-hmm. I'm using the one full air quotes because. <laughs> A market rate is a very, it's a very, uh, you know, objective thing. It's like, hey, well, really, what is a market rate? It's what a landlord and a tenant agree to. But there is some parameters, uh, you know, or there, there are some parameters that the IRS will look at. And right. so your CPA will, will, uh, look at this and go, uh, you're charging yourself $60 a square foot, uh, for your, your, um, uh, you know, your rent. I don't think I've ever seen one of those in this market. So, you know, you can get with a professional. We can kind of help you set that market rate. But honestly, as long as you're not grossly outside of that market rate, the, the, it's, you're not going to raise any red flags. I, you could easily, as a, as a landlord, say, well, I want to receive, you know, 25% profit on my money. And so you look at your principal and interest. Multiply that times 1.25. That'll get you 25% interest on your, uh, on your investment that you that you've had here and as long as that number is not hurting the practice well then do it right because all right. you're doing is you're increasing your rent which increases your tax deductions as a tenant you're putting more money that is necessary into the holding company that uh that pays the mortgage so for you as well as so you're pulling out of your right pocket putting it in your left pocket and then at the end of the year if there's money left over which there should be in that in that uh that LLC That is the holding company for you know for the building. Well, now you can take that and you can pay down the the principal faster instead of just letting it go that way. So you're really kind of maximizing your deductions on on all sides. Now I'm not a CPA, neither do I play one on TV. So please make (laughs) sure you always uh, get with your CPA and you talk to him about those strategies and what works best because the you never want to. The big thing is your practice is the driving engine. You never want to hurt your practice. You never want to cash flow strap your practice for the building. And we have this happen all the time where clients come to us and want to go from leasing to owning and their, their appetite for the building is larger than what they should do for their practice. And so we have to kind of help them bring that down and go, no, 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 practice is first. Out. Yes, this is a great investment. Yes, real estate. This is a wonderful building. But at the end of the day, that you have to stroke that check for principal and interest first before you can get the payment. And so it's all gotta work out. Really, it kinda has to cash flow for that whole year. It can't just be every month you're you're passing it back and forth because it, it's gonna get tight and you don't want that to happen.
0: Right. Right. So um so all right, let's say, you know, it's hard when you're negotiating with yourself, but let's say that <clears throat> you yeah. don't own the building. You know, if we transition into saying, all right, well. I I can't I can't own a building yet, but maybe I I want to mm-hmm. renegotiate the existing lease. You know, it's time up, and I, I'm about ready to yeah. re-sign.
1: What are negotiables in this market? Well, the the old adage is everything's negotiable. Okay, and that's yep. not true. <laughs> there's there's a lot of things I've that learned are negotiable. that. Um, yeah, there's a lot of things that are negotiable, and there are some things that are non-negotiable, especially when it comes to a third party. So, when there's a landlord, and, and this is what we deal with a lot, especially in certain markets. Certain markets are high, high leasing. Uh, just the national average, just, you know, I'm so sure you're aware, the national average for uh, optometrists leasing their spaces is going to be about 80%. 80% mm. of all optometrists are, are going to lease their space. Only 20% own. Now, what you'll find is in different areas of the country, that number may push up to a hundred percent because there's no right. way they're owning, you know, uh, most optometrists are never going to be able to buy um, a, uh, a building in Orange County, California, eh, you know, unless you've got one heck of a practice going, but then you hit markets like mine in, in Oklahoma where no, we've got probably around uh 30, 40% ownership that they could very easily. And so that's, you know, that's where you're going to average out there. But the thing that we're going to, as an agent, I'm always going to go after is, is a, it's a balancing act. I always tell my, my clients, it really, it, think of a, a panel, you know, a wall that has a, a panel on it and it's got levers all over. It's got about you know, seven or eight different levers. Well, if I really want to pull the lever down of, of lease rate, I really need to get that lease rate down. Well, consequently, another lever is going to go up somewhere else for the landlord. Mm. It may be that the landlord goes, okay, well, if, if the lease rate's going down, I can't give you $50 a square foot in tenant improvement allowances. Okay. Right. Oh, okay. Well, so if if my client says, man, I, I need to, you know, I'm doing a startup. So it's a startup client. And he goes, man, I, I it's going to cost us $185 a square foot to build out the space. You know, I've got the space where I need it. But, you know, the loan that I'm getting from the bank is only giving me X amount of dollars for build out. Well, that's not even enough to cover it. So then what we're going to say is, okay, we need to bring that lever down of TI and really get as much TI as possible. But at the same time, that means the lease rate is going to go up a little bit. So it's just, it's really figuring out where the financials are and, and what is going to work for the tenant. Because when we're talking tenant improvement allowances, free rent, build out period, which is also a form of free rent, we're talking about the lease rate, exclusivity clauses, um, HVAC and electrical, you know, all these kind of things that are, that are built into how the landlord's going to deliver the space to us. All of this stuff, it's just, it's all dollars and cents. It all comes down to right. dollars and cents. And then really the, the, the biggest factor that helps us get more concessions from landlords is length of term. Okay. Right. When you, when you say, man, I'm, I only want to do a three-year lease. Well, when you're doing a three-year lease, there's not a lot of wiggle room in in there for, for lease rate, uh, you know there's there 's not a lot of uh, incentive for the landlord to give you a lower lease rate and give you certain concessions at the same time that 's why in healthcare it 's pretty common to have seven and ten sometimes even fifteen year leases but that seven to ten year range is is pretty common for most of our clients
0: What happens if um let's say that the business sells and i mean who is 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 it always like, is there a way out of that? So let's say I I decide I'm going to take a 10 year lease, and then I sell my business, or God forbid it goes under, and um, yeah. like who is uh, who's on the hook for that? And like in terms of those longer term mm-hmm. leases, uh, and and do I have personal protections or? You know, when I'm out and somebody else, a new entity buys my business, does that lease carry through with this mm-hmm. new entity? How does that all work?
1: Yeah. That's a, that's a great question, Chris. So that that moves from the, the business points or it moves from the kind of the financial points of the lease that we talk about a lot. Everybody focuses on the financial points, you know, the of mm-hmm. my lease rate, you know, how much TI am I getting, free rent, all that kind of stuff. And and we need to have those where they, you know, where they necessarily need to be. Or else the deal just doesn't pencil it from the beginning. But then now you're looking at more of those those business terms. Now these are things that sometimes we will negotiate on, but a lot of times we will work in tandem with the attorney. Because you know, we're negotiating through LOIs and things. In commercial, we we don't, you know, we don't hand contracts back and forth like they do in residential. We negotiate with LOIs and RFPs and things that are completely non-binding until we get to the point where both sides have, are going, yeah, I think the basic deal points are gonna work here. Now if you know that this is something like, uh, let's just say you're um, a doc who has been practicing for 20 years, and you're like, "Man, I, I only want to practice another five, but I need to, I need to renew my lease. I, I need to, you know, man, this the space is kind of old, and these, I need to put new flooring, new trim, new paint. I mean, there's there's a lot of money I got to sink into this. I don't want to do that because I'm I'm just going to try to turn around and sell my practice, you know, here in the next few years, anyways. Well, that is something where we get called an assignability clause. And that is something that will be in almost every lease and the language, there's some boilerplate language that you'll find in most of these things. But when we know that a a person is looking to assign that lease or looking to sell that practice anywhere in the term of, of the, uh, you know, of the lease, or sometimes even if it's Not something that we know it's going to happen. Uh, We'll just make sure there's a little bit of language in there that says that the landlord can't uh, unreasonably withhold you assigning the lease to uh, someone you sell the practice to. But if we know Mm -hmm. that that's probably something coming up, we're going to push for even stronger assignability language that that basically has it where you can assign the lease fully and wholly to another entity that is of like kind, you know, who will buy your practice. It's just, you know, we talk to the landlord about it. Most of the time, they don't care. If if you they know that healthcare is the most stable tenant on the planet, and so just to go back to your uh, you know um, uh, something you said in your initial question, that is, well, what happens if my practice goes under? First of all, that that's extremely rare. That is, I mean, very very rare. That's one of the reasons why we we're in healthcare is that you guys pretty much don't go under, don't fail. That's why banks are willing to loan. Five, six, seven hundred thousand dollars to students who have only been out for a few years, you know, who've got a little bit of experience to go start up a practice because they know the odds are in their favor of, of you know, completing that practice and, and going 10, 15, 20 years, right? Mm-hmm. If something does happen, they're probably just going to sell the practice anyways. They're not just going to close the doors. So that's really the, the safeguard is you've got the assignability for when you sell the practice. So that way it, you're now totally off the hook. And then most of the time, there's death and disability clauses and stuff like that. You know, let's just let's take the worst case scenario. You know, let's just say you, you died. Well, you, you've you got death and disability, you know, insurance that's going to cover. I mean, you're probably going to have a loan, maybe a loan on the practice, maybe a loan left on, you know, a startup. Maybe you bought a practice and there's still some loan left on that. It's going to pay off your debts. And, right. uh, you know, landlords are all – they have – they're subservient most of the time anyways to all that stuff. So, you know, when you, when you think about it, it's not like you're um, a little – Let's just take the one example maybe that you were thinking of that wasn't death, and that is, uh, you know, hey, my practice does fail. What am I going to do?
0: Young and emerging presbyopes can be tricky. These patients want and need additional help at NEAR, but they can be resistant to solutions that create even mild distance blur. The MyDay multifocal lens has been great for our presbyopic patients. It allows those patients to transition into a multifocal more easily. We've had this lens now for long enough that we've been able to see how simple transitions can be from an adaptation standpoint from lower ad designs to higher ad designs. The MyDay Multifocal Material is Cooper Vision's softest one-day hydrogel lens and features AquaForm technology combining the unique balance of high oxygen permeability with natural wettability in one material. The result is a highly breathable lens that keeps our patient's eyes looking clear, white, and healthy. So if you haven't started utilizing My Day Multifocal in your practice, I'd encourage you to reach out to your Cooper Vision representative to get started. As you know, patients with vitreous floaters are often frustrated by their symptoms. The challenge as clinicians is to offer solutions for our patients for vitreous floaters that are effective. But more often than not, the options of YAG vitreolysis and vitrectomy are not practical because the benefits don't outweigh the risks. That's where vitreous health from MacuHealth comes into play. Previously on the podcast, I've discussed the FLIES study with Dr. John Nolan. And the bottom line is that I can be confident prescribing this for my patients with floaters because I can tell them a large randomized placebo-controlled trial found that after six months of supplementation with vitreous health, floaters were reduced in size by approximately 30%, and 70% of patients had an improvement in their symptoms. Vitreous health has been great for my patients, and we really feel like we have a viable option to treat patients with vitreous floaters now that we didn't have before. If you're not utilizing vitreous health for your patients, reach out to your Macula health representative now. Uh, the the next point I was going to go to is is subletting. So, you know, let's say you want to move. Yeah. And you identify mm-hmm. um, how much when you're negotiating on the front end, how much of that should you negotiate mm-hmm. your ability to sublet? And then what's the average sort of boilerplate stuff that occurs within subletting? So yeah. it's like, man, I got three years left on my on my existing lease, but I got this opportunity for a building mm-hmm. over here that can be done in a year and a half. Drive. There's probably something good about yes. me being able to control who comes into my space. Tell me about that. How does that all work?
1: Hundred percent. Hundred percent. Yeah, and that's so the subletting, the assigning, there's so much so many of these clauses that are just boilerplate, these leases, and, and what it will always come down to. And this is uh something we we hear uh, we hear clients sometimes will say, and a lot of times they'll say it after their attorney, you know, they've talked that we've sent the lease over to their attorney, and it's a non-real estate attorney, it's just their their buddy who happened to be an attorney who's reviewing their lease. Please, Chris, don't do that. Please, anybody who's listening to me in the sound of my voice, do not use your bu- your buddy who is the attorney if he's not a real estate attorney to review your lease. Okay, attorneys specialize just like doctors do. So you know he may be a great divorce law attorney or a great litigator, but he doesn't know what he's looking at for the most part. I mean, he does, but he doesn't know the standard language on a commercial lease. Find a guy who does that. I mean, we refer our clients' attorneys all the time just because we watch deals die in legal. Mm. Attorneys will blow these things up because they will go, this lease is totally in the landlord's favor. What's going on here? I, I, mm. Why would we sign such a lease? And, and that goes back to my first point. Yes, the lease will always be in the landlord's favor. There are that language that is boiler ploy, uh, boilerplate. When you're a landlord, you're going to have a lease that's in right. your favor. Because right. believe it or not, you're, you're in the most risk. Okay. Not the tenant. You have the most risk. And so that language is in there. So when you get to that assignability and that, uh, subletting, basically it's going to say the tenant shall not under any means, uh, you know, assign or sublet this, you know, uh, space, blah, 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 without landlord's prior approval. Okay. So that's just kind right. of normal. And then there's an extra line that we can get in there that just kind of covers the majority of, of situations that is, and the landlord will not withhold that unreasonably. Okay. Mm. So if you get that language in, it just says, and the landlord won't uh, withhold it unreasonably. That's easy to to go. Hey, dude, I found a tenant who's going to pay, pay the rent. You can't tell me that, that, you know, that they can't come in here and do this unless you're, unless they're, you know, someone who's bringing some horrible use to the space or, you know, something like that, or it conflicts with another, you know, exclusivity in the area. So that's the normal language that we can get added into it. And sometimes it's already there because honestly, like I said, they don't care. They just want right. somebody to fill the space and pay the rent. And as long as you're doing that, they're fine. And so, really, there's, they're very open to a lot of scenarios of subletting and assigning. Um, especially to another, you know, if you're signing and you're selling the practice, man, that's another doctor coming in there buying it or another entity, you know, that's coming in this buying and, you know, maybe, maybe private equity's buying it or something like that. And then they've, they've right. got, you know, doctors who are going to run it. it. They don't care. They're, they're happy. They just don't want this, to, you know, you to, uh, to sublet it out to, you know, maybe a, a CBD shop when that's going to be the yeah, second or third exactly CBD shop thinking. in their, uh, in their strip.
0: <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, I wonder where they. I, that actually, that brings up another just another question. I where the heck are they getting all that money? Like in Nebraska, this is crazy to me, and it must be just some. It's like we're David talking about the, the, about, C-
1: the CBD money. <laughs> yeah,
0: I mean they they talk about like big. You know, you talk yeah. about big tobacco, and um, but there's 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 no yeah. way a mom oh, yeah. and pop. So in Nebraska, marijuana is not legal. And CBD is there's no way they're bringing yeah. in enough money to cover the lease on the spaces that they have. So there's no way a mom and pop shop is oh, opening. These. There's got to be big, big uh, marijuana money it's, going in to establish roots, so that crazy. when it, it happens, it's crazy. They can Chris, pull the that's lever.
1: exactly right. Yes, you're, exa- you're exactly right. So I'm in Oklahoma. We only uh, legalize medical marijuana. To. Four years ago. Uh, don't don't quote me on that one. Uh three, four years ago. In, in the recent future. Or past. In the recent past. Yeah. But yeah. um, so yeah, it's only been legal here medically for a while. And every CBD shop almost turned into a, a dispensary. And and yeah, you're right. That's exactly what they're doing. They're going in, they're getting the foothold, um, they're finding out what landlords are amicable to this. Because not every landlord is amicable to it, and it's not just that they have any type of, you know, philosophical, you know, problem with it, most of the time it is that they're they're just someone who is a little worried that the bank will uh, call their note because you know Mm -hmm. with marijuana being federally illegal uh if you have a mortgage on so if you have a mortgage uh as a landlord on the entire property and you have a tenant who's breaking federal law Mm
0: -hmm. you can
1: be held responsible like the bank could say we're calling the whole note we can't do that yeah. It rarely ever happens. This is something that I mean we even see now banks that are going as far as saying, hey, we're now the weed bank. We're now loaning. Interesting. And then these are yeah. FDIC insured banks. It's man, the landscape is really changing in that area. Um, you know, depending upon what your feelings are on that stuff. But uh but yeah, it it's but it still brings most of those are CBD and vape shops, and 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 at the end of the day, you look at it and, and landlords, like I said, they want tenants filling the spaces, which is why in every retail strip center, we always make a joke in our industry. It's like, okay, so the first <laughs> three tenants that come in, it's always a, a nail salon, donut shop, and a CBD. That's yeah. There's there's your first three tenants oh, in any awesome. given retail <laughs> space, and then outside of that, all right, here's the massage therapist. Here's the. It's just yeah. That's it is what it is. And, yeah. Which is one of the reasons why. We have to we have to be very careful. I mean, our clients, I mean, you guys are are running a a very nice professional business. I mean, and it's got yeah. a good especially optometry has a great retail component to it with selling high-end sunglasses and things like that. And you have to you don't have control over your neighbors for the most part. So you really have to be careful of what spaces you go into, and and we can't get language into most of these leases that says, Hey, you know, promise you're never gonna put this type of tenant in the space. The landlord's like, Nope. <laughs> that's yep. not happening. Yep. I will I will put it there who I want to put in there and you don't get to tell me that. The most we can get is maybe a right of first refusal on the space uh, that's adjacent to us to hopefully expand in, in the future if we need to.
0: Yeah. Well so I I you know Jeremy as a as a kind of a lay person in this space, um what am I missing? What yeah. what is something that we haven't talked about that you're like Chris, this should be on your mind, whether you're purchasing land, building a building, or just yeah. renegotiating leases. Yeah. What, what am I missing in all of this?
1: Here's the one thing that, that we haven't talked about yet, because I mean, we, we honestly jumped into some really good conversation, Chris. I've really enjoyed this. Um, <laughs> the Me The thing too. That, that you need to be thinking about, okay? So the number one thing that you need to be thinking about is as a non-real estate professional on the buyer-tenant side, Okay, now if you're a landlord, if you own property and you're looking to lease it out, you're looking to sell it, this doesn't apply to you. Okay. You can go try to do it yourself all day long and and, and hopefully save yourself maybe two, three percent, you know, something like that. Kind of like for yeah. sale by owner on a house. I mean, I've I've sold multiple homes myself prior to being licensed because uh once I once I got into licensing, I'm like, <laughs> yeah, I'm not, I'm not doing that anymore. Now now I have to disclose you know a whole bunch of stuff. But you know, so I did for sale by owner multiple times. And it's something where I can save the two or 3% on my side. I'm still going to have the, you know, the buyer's agent come bring me a buyer most likely. So I'm going to pay them their commission happily. You bring me a buyer, I'm going to pay your commission. So as a landlord or seller, you could try to save some money by doing it yourself. But as a buyer or a tenant, you're not saving any money. Right. Ever. right. By doing this yourself, you're hurting yourself because especially in commercial. So, you know, residential, there's, you know, there's a lot of FISBO and all that kind of stuff out there. You don't see for sale by owner in commercial hardly ever. You see signs that say for lease, for sale, and it's got Colliers and CBRE and NAI and Cushwick yep. and all these other guys on there. So that lets you know that a professional investor who invests in real estate, who owns that building, he's not even doing this himself. He's hired a right. broker to represent him. And you think as a, as a healthcare professional, you're going to come in and, <laughs> and, and, and get yeah. the best deal from these guys? No, it's not going to happen. And so that's the thing that no matter if you're buying land, buying a building, doing a new lease, renewing a lease, that's the one that most of our clients don't they don't think about. Yeah. They yeah. they honestly get caught off guard by the renewals because they they signed that initial lease, they didn't even know we existed, and then you know, their lease comes up and, and what happens is that landlord is going to have a notification period that he has to let the tenant know that the lease is up and that he he's basically want to find out if the tenant wants to stay. The tenant also has a notification period. Those two notification periods aren't the same. Tenant mm. typically has to let the landlord know about 180 days in advance if he's going to stay. And the landlord only has to say something to the tenant 90 days in advance. So basically, mm. they get to wait till you're cornered. They get to wait till uh, they've, got, they've got you exactly where they want you. And then they, they yeah. go... They, they basically walk in with a new lease 90 days from expiration, slide that new lease, say, Hey, doc, here you go. Here's your new lease for the next five years. Take a look at that and uh, let me know if you have any questions, any problems. And then the doctor goes, Oh, shoot, I, I, I forgot my lease was coming up this year. I, man, I, I was wanting to move to a better space. Or, man, I need, I'm growing like mm. crazy. I need more space. And then now they're 90 days out from basically their lease expiring mm. and the landlord being able to kick them out. And they go, Ah, oh, there's nothing I can do. And so they kind of, you know, they go back and forth and maybe hope, hopefully get the landlord to get them a new coat of paint, you know, in the, uh, in the, the space, not knowing that they've just left tens to hundreds of thousands of dollars on the table. And so we come in when our clients, we help them renegotiate those leases. And we don't wait till that renewal, we want to do this a year in advance, maybe, maybe even a little over a year in advance. If, if a person even mentions they want to own or or do a building construction, I need to be talking to them two years in advance before their lease expiring, okay? So that way we can have all those things lined out before that happens. So that's the number one issue. The number one problem that our our agents face is when we meet a client, they go, oh, if only I would have known you six months ago. If only I would have heard about you, you know, when I signed this lease, I'm I'm two years into a five-year lease. What can you do for me? And the answer is nothing. I can do nothing. Yeah. And so I have to wait now until the right time period. And then we can do this again. The good news is a lease is always going to renew. Most of the time it, it was shorter leases because landlords actually like to keep you on shorter leases Then they don't have to give as many concessions and they can kind of keep you on your toes. And they're always, you know, sending new, new Mm -hmm. lease renewals over to you. It's, it's very, there, there's different tactics that you find out that, that landlords will use, but which is why we use a lot of long-term leases because for healthcare, it's best to get that fixed cost secured for the next 10 years. If we can, because your rent or your mortgage payment, you know, your rent, especially your rent is typically your practice's second highest expense payrolls. Number one. Right lease or mortgage is number two. And so if you can secure that for the next 10 years and know, hey, I've done my best. I negotiated ahead of time. I had a professional agent in there for me. He got me the best rate, the most concessions, all of that. We have literally saved clients. I mean, I, my personal best is $430,000, saving a, wow. a startup client $430,000 on a 10-year lease. So from when their wow. landlord, where the landlord started at his rent rate, to what I got him down to, the amount of concessions, of tenant improvement allowances, of free rent, of all that kind of stuff, totaled up to $430,000 for a startup dental wow. suite. Okay, Two dentists wow. going into a uh, startup suite. But we've actually had $1.1 I think was our company's uh, highest, that was on a medical one. Over 10 years. old wow. saved them $110,000 a year. Yeah, and wow. that was on renewal, by the way, The $110,000 a year. And they thought that landlord was their best friend, honestly. They, yeah, they're like, Oh man, no, the landlord's great. Yeah, take a look at our lease, I'm sure you won't find anything. And the problem was, they signed that lease, uh, I think in like 05, 06, 07, something like that, when rates were really high. And this was in 2010 10 or 11 when you know the market mm. had crashed, the so lease rates were a very big difference. Well, the landlord doesn't offer to to take your lease rate down, he doesn't right. just walk them and go, Hey, um, you know, Chris. The lease, uh, you know, leasing market's really kind of bad right now. I'm just really happy you're here. We, uh, I'm going to go ahead and drop your lease rate by a couple dollars a square foot because that's kind of the market rate right now. So would you go ahead and consider staying here for five more years? No, that doesn't happen. <laughs> Annual increases every year is what happens. And so that's yeah. something that if you don't get ahead of it, if you don't have the right timing and the right posture, it's not just timing, it's timing and posture, when you, uh, when you go after this, It's going to fail miserably. And that landlord's going to say, Nope, not going to do it. Nope. Go find another space. And you're going to think, oh my gosh, this guy's he's just unwielding. He's he's gonna he's gonna kick me out. And really, he's sweating bullets that any of his healthcare tenants are Mm. gonna leave. And so we just have to have the right posture. And and when you have a when you've hired an agent that lets him know you now know what's going on. That mm-hmm. agent knows the market. He's now told you what the market is. You guys are out there looking at other stuff. It's not just you as a doctor going, you know, uh, hey, could I, could I get a little bit less on that rent rate? Maybe, uh, you know, could you put some new carpet and paint in here? No, that it's a totally different posture. Yeah.
0: So, Jeremy, when my listeners need to uh, renegotiate their leases a year in advance before their yeah. their lease is up, how do they get a hold of you? Where do, where do people find you?
1: Simple man. Car. rus Us. You go right there, and then you can go up to the top and click "Find an Agent." And we have agents across the nation. We transact in all fifty states. In fact, um, hopefully by the by the end of this summer, or definitely by the end of the year, we will have we will actually carry licensing in all fifty one jurisdictions hmm. uh, in the United States. So we will basically we'll be licensed to transact everywhere. Which, uh, to my knowledge, there are less than a handful of national commercial real estate firms that, uh, that hold all the licensing. They, they typically will use, you know, a, a broker's license, in another area. But yeah. Go to car.us, find an agent uh, that will help you get in contact with uh, the Asian, your local market. Um, if you just feel like giving me a call, you know, you can find me there as well. I, you know, just go to Oklahoma. You'll, you'll see me, uh, listed down there, <laughs> but this is, this is something where we, um, we were created out of out of a need, I'm just going to tell you a quick story of our CEO, Colin, because honestly, th- this story says everything about our company and, uh, and the heart behind our company. Colin worked for Colliers, which is, uh, so one of the, I think the third mm-hmm. largest commercial real estate company in the world. He worked for Colliers for almost a decade and he saw as a listing broker, he saw dentists and optometrists and veterinarians calling these four lease signs and, and, and basically calling and, and as an agent, so when somebody calls that sign, the, then, uh, you know, he calls the landlord and says, hey, I've got, we've got a potential tenant. And the landlord would ask a couple of questions. First question was, what's the use? You know, is this a CVD shop? Or is this a, uh, you know, is this right. a donut shop? Is this a Jimmy John's? What is it? And uh, and he would go, no, no, no this, is, this is a doctor. And then the second question out of the landlord's mouth would be, okay, so uh, does he have any representation? And the answer was always mm. no. So the answer was no, because no- nobody, didn- in commercial real estate, nobody represents the buyer tenant side of the transaction only, and healthcare professionals like we do. I mean, there, there's very few there's very few firms that even do that. In fact, there's only one other national firm that uh, that represents the buyer tenant side only, and they don't really do healthcare. They they do you know, so they do much much larger uh, things. You know, if you're a fifty thousand square foot user, then they'll talk to you, not a five thousand square foot user. Right. And right. so they, we just there was nobody out there helping physicians. And so when he would tell them, no, there's no representation, then that landlord's like, all right, tell them $35 a square foot. And then as the listing broker, he would go, oh, hey, uh, just, just a reminder, um, the last tenant we signed there, you know, was at uh, $28 a square foot, not 35. And he goes, yeah, I know. You said this is a doctor, and you said he doesn't have any representation, means he doesn't know what market Mm -hmm. is, tell him (laughs) 35. As a listing broker, your client, you have to be obedient to your client, and so you're just gonna go back, and his job as a listing broker is to get the most money possible for your client. Well, that's what our job is on the tenant side to get the most concessions possible for our client to to make sure that you are not paying any more than you have to on that lease and that all the terms are as good as we can get it for you because the guy on the other side is doing his job as well so don't fault them for doing their job and don't fault the landlord for trying to get as much money as possible as he can for his space but just don't don't be an idiot and don't yeah. and and do this yourself and go toe to toe with professionals who do this all day long awesome
0: Awesome. Jeremy, this has been a lot of fun. Okay. Thanks for coming on. I appreciate it.
1: Yeah. Been great, Chris. Thank you Thanks. so much for having me on.
0: You're welcome.